This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School, presented by the Wise Investor Team, making Canadians more financially literate one post at a time. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. Today, we have a very special guest on the show, Erin Burry, your co-founder of Willful Wills, and she's joining us today to talk about the modern-day estate and will planning. Thank you for being on the show today. The reason why I've been really excited to have you on today was because I've personally seen how will planning is very important, being a financial planner. Um, One of the main causes of a lot of family conflicts that I've experienced over the last 10 years of doing financial planning is when families don't work together in kind of like pre-planning their will before something happens. And you can see a lot of family conflict surrounding around money. I've personally seen in my family life, families break apart because of uh, improper will planning. And then also, we've chatted about this before, but modern day wills isn't just about money. It could be about online assets and because of everything being online nowadays, it adds a whole aspect to will planning. So that's why we've had you on the podcast today. Super excited to talk about that. Thank you for being here. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors, King Street Media. King Street Media does all the behind the scenes post-production and posting for the Wise Investor podcast, what they did not teach you in school. Thank you for that. And if you have any questions about your own production or online marketing, you can find them at King Street Media pretty much everywhere online. Okay, let's jump into this. Are you also going to tell the audience the fun fact that we live in the same condo building? I was actually just about to say that. Okay. We were going to do a virtual podcast, as that's what we've been doing as of late. The last three podcasts have been virtual. Um, and then we were talking, and so happened to be that we were in the same condo building, a couple floors away from each other. So we decided to film this one in person, socially distant. Note that we have the hand sanitizer here, and Mark's wearing a mask behind the camera. So yeah, really funny, small world. And also, we know a bunch of mutual uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, a couple of them have been on the podcast. A couple are coming on the podcast. So um, note to the listeners, Toronto is a very small world. So that's also a good thing and a bad thing, depending on how you look at exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so you're the founder of Willful. Co-founder, my husband and co-founder would correct you. How is say. that? co-founding a company with your significant other it's good i mean i have to give him full credit he founded it solo in 2017 and got it off the ground i was the uh you know the resource behind the scenes i was running an agency at the time and so i was an advisor and put uh, a bit of money into it as an investor but he really got it off the ground by himself and somehow slowly over the next year he broke me down and and finally convinced me to join full-time so now we are very much co-founders but he really was there in the early dark days of the business where you know it's the hardest and you have the least resources so a full kudos to him for that is there ever a difficulty turning it off like when you okay now we're stopping to talk about business or work and let's get to our personal lives or is it 24 7 7 days a week it's 24 7 and 
in, it's not in a bad way. It's just that we often have ideas or things that we're working through or you jolt up in bed right before you drift off to sleep and say, oh my God, I forgot to email this person or I had this great idea or I'll wake up and say, I had a dream about the business last night. Uh, so we try to be pretty uh, thoughtful about having time for our personal life and carving out date nights and uh, time for that. But to be honest, we're in the phase of our business where everybody at the company is living and breathing willful, which happens at an early stage startup, which you would know as someone who runs a small business as well. So sure. it's it, it's something where I try to take off Friday after work until Sunday and have my leisure time and my relaxation, which I think is essential for your mental health, but also for the creativity that you can put into the business. But from Sunday afternoon until Friday at five, it's pretty much all willful all the time. That I get. Like Mark and I, I was telling you, we we moved in together in July. And just the other day we were saying, hey, man, like we need to go out of our way to schedule some like fun time because we're eating dinner and we're just like either not talking to each other because we're like trying to defuse like our our mental work, you know, like wind down or we're talking about business and that can have a strain sometimes, especially on co-founders. For sure. And I mean, you know, we got married in October of 2018 and we became co-founders in March of 2019. So it was also a lot of transition. And I mean, we've been together for 14 years, so it wasn't a big move or anything. But uh, but, you know, I think the biggest complaint that I hear from founders who don't have a co-founder is being lonely. And the biggest complaint I hear from people with co-founders is struggling to get along or be aligned <laughs> with their co-founder. So I think it's one of those situations of there's always problems. Just pick which problems you'd rather have. Fair, fair. Um, how did you guys start uh, Willful? What's the inception story on that? Yeah, I mean, you were just telling me before we hit record about the inception for, for King Street Wealth and it really coming from a need. People seeing that you were doing a great job marketing for yourself and then they really needed help. And Willful also came from a personal need or a personal experience, I should say. Uh, Kevin's uncle passed away a few years ago and he had a will, but to your point, he had never discussed any other end of life planning. So we had no idea whether Uncle Dave wanted to be buried, cremated, uh, you know, what, who he wanted to pass on specific heirlooms to. So his will was, you know, really just the tip of the iceberg to all of these unanswered questions. And at the time we were in our late twenties and we thought to ourselves, you know, we're using apps like Wealthsimple and BorrowWell and Airbnb. Why isn't there something simple and beautiful that not only helps you plan for this stuff, but that destigmatizes it and educates people around to your point, what happens if you don't have these conversations and the strife that you put your family through? So that was really the inception of it. And the long-term vision is how can we get Canadians to talk more about this stuff? Because people don't, they avoid it like sorry, the plague, it's probably a bad phrase to use in 2020. Uh, and, you know, how can we actually make it a bit more affordable and accessible? Because it's obviously a pretty complex and opaque topic and one that typically involves, uh, you know, thousands of dollars. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I feel like one, I like how you mentioned Wealthsimple and BorrowWell and all these other online applications. It's true. It doesn't seem like there's really a solution for estate planning and like will planning. But it's also a lot to do surrounding because we do insurance on our at our financial planning practice and most people don't wake up and they're like i want to buy life insurance so it kind of like needs to be sold in a way or motivated and i feel like that's kind of similar for will planning as well because it's surrounded around death and it's very difficult to talk about for a lot of people so how do you overcome that from a communication standpoint to be to say because to me it makes a lot of sense I'm from a very early age, my parents 
brought me in on their will. And they're like, this is what would happen if we were to pass away. And that's because we've had bad uh, experiences within the family. But that's not the norm for most people. So how do you make that more of a modern day topic for people to discuss? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The people that tend to be very open and adamant and passionate about estate planning are the ones who have had, unfortunately, family members pass away who didn't have a plan. And they were the ones left cleaning that up, much like our own situation. And you're absolutely right that it, similar to life insurance, there's no forced urgency with estate planning, whether that is buying life insurance, creating a power of attorney, getting a will, because you don't have an end date. You know, I'm a journalism grad and I don't do anything without a deadline. Well, unfortunately, no one tells you, you know what, you're going to die on January 17th, 2052. So make sure you have a will on January 16th. You have no idea. And the whole point of a will is that you want to get it before you need it, because when you need it, it's too late. So our entire day is spent trying to think of how do we create forced urgency around something that will inevitably never have a deadline? And the way that we've decided to do that is not through fear and anxiety. You know, we could come out and say, hey, there's a pandemic. You could die tomorrow. Get a will. We've decided to rather go the route of peace of mind, legacy, kind of owning your story, and just destigmatization of these conversations. Millennials are, you know, it's been proven that they're more open to talking about death, that they're not as closed off about those topics. So, you know, it's how do we actually make this as common as talking about investing or as talking about saving and budgeting? Money, as you well know, is still a taboo topic. I was talking about this with my girlfriends last night. I don't know what any of my friends make. I don't know their salary. We don't talk about that stuff. Why do you think that's the case? What what is it that is it about? Because we grew up saying, don't tell people about how much money. You should never ask how much money. I I think it's because people are afraid either that they make too little or that they make too much. Because mm-hmm. that creates a dynamic, right? It does, sure. And people also don't talk about estate planning for a different reason, which is people don't like to talk about their own mortality, right? There's this feeling that if I talk about death, I'm somehow inviting it into my life. I'm making it more realistic. Even, you know, unfortunately, Chadwick Boseman just passed away without a will. He was terminally ill for three years. Even people who have been diagnosed with something and they know, unfortunately, the end is coming they still won't do these things really? because it's it's kind of an, an acceptance that death is going to happen instead of uh, trying to kind of put it out of your mind. So to your point, I think we could probably do a better job as a society of talking more about money in general and estate planning as one of those kind of core pillars. That is one of the that is one of the main reasons why I started this podcast and you hit it right on the the head there like, Money and money just in life, personal finance, should be more of an open conversation so that people make stop making stupid mistakes. Because if someone makes a mistake, you don't even hear about it, so you can't learn Because they're from embarrassed, because yeah. they don't want to say it. I've been very open about the fact that I got sent to collections when I was in university because I got a $500 student credit card. No one really uh-huh. explained to me what a credit score was, didn't pay it off, and now I'm so vocal about it. And you don't know how uh, how common of a it's situation so common. that People is. don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you don't want to... I think with finances, you you don't want to be behind the eight ball, but you don't realize that everybody else is also behind the eight ball in one way or another. You know, the person that has, you remember that show, Tell Debt, Do Us Part on Canadian television? That sounds super familiar. It's all these families that had a, a pile of debt and this financial expert would help them get out of it. But what always okay. shocked me is that the people that had the most debt on this show were the ones who seemed the richest from the outside, the ones with the fancy houses and the nice cars. And it 
it seems to me like there's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses involved with, you know, human nature in general, but also with why we don't talk about our finances, because we want to be seen as the doing the best or the richest. And I'm very open about how I run a startup. I hope that I am uh, doing really well one day, but right now I'm paying myself as little as possible so I can put everything back into the business. I wear that as a badge of honor. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And that's funny because I asked that to all the the entrepreneur people that I have on the podcast. It's like, well, how has being an entrepreneur affected your finances? Because obviously you could get a job with your skill set probably anywhere and collect a good income, but you chose to do this whole startup thing. What was the leap of faith that you had to take, especially from a risk tolerance standpoint in uh, starting your own company and collecting as little as you possibly need so that you can invest everything back into the company's growth? That was probably a hard decision for you, no? It's interesting. It's a mentality shift. So when Kevin had the idea for the business, uh, I was running the agency and and doing some public speaking and, and other things on the side. And thankfully, was in a position where I could say, you know, hey, leave your job. He was working in trades at the time. Uh, leave your job. And, you know, you have a year to kind of get this to a place where hopefully you can be bringing in some money. And, um, you know, for me, I was just happy. I was with someone that wanted to take risks and that was entrepreneurial. And so I was happy to kind of cover the bills for that year, knowing that I could. And then after a year, I kind of started tapping my toes and, you know, looking at my watch and saying, okay, it's been a year. Uh, But, you know, in his mind, every dollar that they made was going back into the business. And as soon as I joined the business, I completely stopped tapping my toes and waiting for money to come in because I shifted my mentality to, oh my God, why would we pay ourselves when we could put all of this into hiring a team and growing the business? And, uh, you know, we still found a way. We have a, a property that we rent out on Airbnb for some income. I do some speaking stuff. So we were still able to pay our bills through that. But the, it was really a mindset shift. And I think as soon as you are the one building the business, it stops being how can I pay myself as much as possible? And it shifts to how can I put as much as possible into the business, hoping that there's going to be a payoff eventually. But the thing I always say to entrepreneurs, and I say this to Kevin all the time, is if you're just doing this for a payout at the end of it, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And you're probably going to be disappointed because even if you have a successful business, the chance that you're going to sell it for 50, 100, 200 million dollars and become the next Elon Musk is slim to none. And so you got to be in it for the journey, for what you're learning. And part of that is at a certain point, you do have to pay yourself and be able to live so that when you're not working, you're not completely stressed out about your personal finances. (laughs) I love that. Amazing. Let's switch subjects to will planning for a bit because I want to make sure that we're good on time and I want to get all the good stuff out of here. So what is a will? And why do you think so few Canadians have a will? Great question. Well, the podcast is called What They Don't Teach You in School. First thing is, did you ever learn about a will or estate planning in school? I sure didn't. If your parents hadn't told you, would your friends have? No, it's not something that people talk about. So I think... Uh, you only learn about it when you go through these inflection points in your life. You acquire a large asset, you get a financial planner, and typically it's someone else in your life telling you, hey, you now have stuff or dependents and you should get a will. And really, while people think it's complex, a will is a simple legal document that says who gets your stuff and who takes care of minor children or pets in the event that you pass away. Uh, It's not a a listing of each of your detailed assets. It's not, you know, detailed instructions for every aspect of your life. It's a pretty simple document. 
And typically you want to start thinking about getting one when you acquire any sort of assets or you have minor children or pets. So a lot of people say, well, I don't need a will. I'm not rich. I'm not Oprah. I don't have a private island. I'm like, you, great, but you have $1,000 in your RSPs or you have a car or you have that heirloom that you definitely don't want to go to your brother. You want it to go to your sister. A will is a way to ensure that your voice speaks on after you're gone, whether that happens tomorrow or when you're 95. When I was when I was three years old, my uncle, he got me a uh, signed Wayne Gretzky card. Oh, wow. Good uh, uncle. Yeah, great uncle. He's a beauty. And he waited in line for like three hours to get this Wayne Gretzky card signed. And he gave it to me and I have it. And this brings it like, maybe I don't have money in the bank account, like a million bucks. Um, but who gets that Wayne Gretzky hockey card? Which probably now is worth a million bucks. So there you go. <laughs> so yeah, who gets that is the key. You know, I don't want I don't want my brother Michael getting it. I want my brother Alex getting it. I'm just kidding, but he's gonna listen to this and find mm-hmm. that funny. He'll be pissed. Okay, so that's very true. So let's talk about some definitions of a will. All right. So we understand that having a will is a dispersion of like distribution instructions of your stuff, essentially. Um, What is a power of attorney and when do they come into effect? Great question. So a power of attorney is a document that comes into effect when you're still alive, but you are unable to make decisions for yourself due to illness or injury. A will will 100% come into effect at some point because unfortunately unless you have figured something out that I haven't we are all going to die at some point so the will comes into effect as soon as you pass away a power of attorney is a document that you may never need because you may never you know get Alzheimer's or get into an accident where you can't communicate for yourself it's a it's a just-in-case document that allows someone to make decisions for your medical care and to handle your finances. So for example, if I got into, this is the fun part of the podcast where I say, if I got into a car accident and was in a coma, you know, my husband would be able to go and tell them, Erin clearly said in this document, she does not want to stay on life support. You know, otherwise it would be a big argument and my family might go to court because my mom might say, nope, we're keeping her on life support for two years when I clearly don't want that. So if you're listening and you say, okay, but that's really depressing. It kind of is, but it's something that is so crucial to your family when something happens. And we saw this with COVID. So many doctors were writing op-eds saying, get a power of attorney. I can't tell you how many families I talked to in the emergency room who have to then go petition the court to get approval, to make decisions. And that can really be literally life and death when it's a crucial situation. Wow. Wow. Serious. Yes. And so... People understand that now power of attorney is when you're kind of alive but unable to make decisions on your own. It can also just be, you can give someone power of attorney. You go travel the world, maybe not during COVID, but when it's over, you go on a 365-day round-the-world trip, you can give your mom power of attorney to pay your bills while you're away. So Mm. there's kind of two kinds of POAs, one for just, hey, I want someone else to be able to sign things for me, and one where it only comes into effect if I become incapacitated. Understood. And how does that differ from uh, people have maybe heard this term about what is an executor of your will? Well, how does that differ? Yeah, so an executor is a role in your will. So in your powers of attorney, and they have different names in different provinces, but in Ontario, you are appointing an attorney, which isn't a lawyer. That's a word for lawyer in the U.S. Your attorney is the person who makes decisions on your behalf. In your will, the most important role is the executor, and that's the person who is essentially 
stepping into your shoes and closing up all of your assets in your estate when you pass away. And it's a big job because this person is, you know, paying your final tax bill because yes, you still have to pay taxes when you die. Uh, they're, you know, distributing all of your assets to your beneficiaries. They're making sure that Wayne Gretzky card goes to the right person. They're handling your burial and funeral wishes. So it's a big job. It typically takes about 12 to 18 months. And uh, and you want to make sure you ask the person first because it isn't just as simple as you would be signing a couple forms. You would be very surprised how many people have a family member pass or a friend or whatever, and they're the executor of the will and they didn't even know. <laughs> so, I hear all the time people tell me, oh yeah, I appointed my sister. I haven't told her though. I'm like, could you please call her and yeah, tell her? Yeah, because it's a massive job. Like, you know, Some people might turn it down and be like, I don't want to do this, right? Because it is an emotional job as well sometimes. Yeah. So uh, if you think that maybe you are an executor of a will, you should ask or have that conversation. Um, and you should know what goes into it as well because it is a time-consuming job. For sure. And there's a great site, a Canadian website called executordepot.com. So if you're interested in what's an executor, how do I choose one, what what actually happens, or if you are an executor and, and you're looking for resources, you can check that out. Great. Thank you. Let's talk about what a beneficiary is really quickly. What 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 is a beneficiary of a will and how does that work? A beneficiary is the person who gets the Wayne Gretzky card. So a beneficiary is someone who receives a gift from your will. And that can be done in two ways. That can either be a gift of a specific item or amount of money. So for example, I leave my Wayne Gretzky card to my brother Joe. Or it can be a percentage of what's called your residual estate, which is just a fancy word for what's left after debts and taxes have been paid and all of those specific gifts have been distributed. Let's talk about that actually as well. Uh, what is an estate? Because people say that, but mo- when people say, what's your estate? Some people think that's real estate. So what is an estate when it comes to will planning? An or, estate or, or is or everything that you own. And it's divided into two types of assets. The first is called movable property, which is, you know, anything you could pick up with your hands, you know, a trailer, a car, uh, your clothing. And then the other type is immovable property. And that's real estate. That's really land, property, houses, cottages, etc. cetera. Uh, but your estate covers everything. I always say it's your umbrella estate covers everything you own. The only exception is any jointly owned assets. So let's say, for example, you know, I own my condo with my husband. If I pass away, it's just going to transfer to him because he's also on title. Uh, or any policies that have a named beneficiary. So if you have life insurance or an RRSP, you likely assigned a beneficiary directly on those policies. So when you pass away essentially your executor is going to make a big list of all of your assets they're going to determine which of those don't flow through your will because they're jointly owned or because they already have a beneficiary on them and everything else that's left comprises your estate and that's what the pool of assets is going to be that gets distributed to your beneficiaries something that's really important that i learned um and in my first couple years as a financial planner is that most times out of 10 the biggest tax bill that you'll ever pay in your entire life is when you die. And most people don't even know that you have to pay taxes when you die. But the year in which you pass away, all your assets go into your estate, let's say. And a lot of those assets like rental properties, RSPs, maybe even paintings, stocks, they all are subject to capital gains tax dividend income tax, and all of that goes in in your final year. And if you're wealthy, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars of income that you have to pay on your final estate. So it's very important to know this, that even 
I just had a client of mine, she took money out of her father's estate too early. And then the accountant came back and said, oh, no, uh, he has a lot of taxes owing. He needed to put her and her sister had to put money back into the estate. So that's very important to understand that you do have to pay your final taxes and probate taxes as well. Yeah, and it's it's something where, you know, I always tell people to talk to get tax advice if they want to kind of understand how their estate will be taxed because you spend your entire life trying to accumulate assets and save up, up as much as you can so that you can put that money into your family's pockets when you pass away. But we don't really spend much time planning effectively for that, right? And trying to do things like leaving charitable gifts and wills, just like when you're alive, that can reduce your final tax bill, even ownership of assets. You know, if you own a property jointly and you pass that on automatically to the joint owner, that really reduces the tax burden. So, you know, at Willful, we're helping people get simple documents in place, but we're not dealing with complex tax planning. And that's where financial advisors and financial planners like yourself really can help people with transitioning wealth in a, in a really effective way. 100%. There's so many tax strategies that you can do to minimize your final estate taxes. We're not going to get into too much of them right now, but yeah, definitely due to time. That would be a whole podcast That's on its That's a own. whole podcast. And really, I mean, I think the, the, the gist here is we did some research that found 57% of Canadians don't have a will. So if you're listening, chances are one in two of you don't have a will. And so don't think about all of this complex tax planning stuff. Just think about getting, taking the first step, getting the will done, getting the simple document, and then think of your estate plan as a living, breathing thing, just like your financial plan. You're evaluating it every year. You're adding products. You're changing up how you invest your money. Think of your estate plan like that. And every year, do a couple things that help to make it more fulsome, whether that is maybe taking, getting some tax advice, whether that's compiling some additional instructions for your family or your executive or, you know, putting all your passwords into a password manager so that your family would be able to access them. There's there's so much you can do to build out this plan, but it's overwhelming to think about doing it all of it at once. So start with a small step. I, I like how you uh, brought up passwords. That's our next topic here because I am known with my team that I have an extensive Google Drive library of my entire life streaming from like Snapchats from 2015 to like Facebook posts and like camera camera roll from my BlackBerry from like 2009, all cataloged inside my Google Drive. So can you talk a little bit about how uh, the digital world has now changed the way that people uh, structure their will? For sure. I mean, I always say that a will is just the tip of the iceberg because when someone passes away, you know, the will says, okay, the money goes to Anthony, but it doesn't say where the money is. It doesn't say which, where I should be looking. Am I looking for a simple account? Am I looking for a bank account? And honestly, the best way that executors figure that out is looking at your last tax return and waiting for physical mail to come into your mailbox with statements from your your right. banks. I've right, I've seen I've seen like two years have gone by and someone saw a statement come by uh, come in and they're like, oh wow, still there's still money in these different spots. Oh, there's a whole other podcast we could do on the billions of dollars that are sitting unclaimed from dead people in uh, the Canadian banks. But again, topic for a different day. But the the goal is 
you know, the best thing you can do to prepare your family is create a will. And the next best thing you can do after you've done that is compile as much information as you can. I have a very, very fun folder called When I Die in Google Drive that I've shared with my executor and my backup executor, because you should always have a backup just in case. And uh, it has all the kind of stuff you're talking about. Maybe not my, my Snapchats. Those are, I'm glad those disappeared. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it has... That's for, people know this about me as well. That's for my grandchildren. I want my grandchildren to see that stuff. I love that. my great-grandchildren. But that's, I mean, you bring up a great point, which is, my folder has a lot of the the logistical things. Here's where I have assets. Here's the accounts that you'll need passwords to. Here's the subscriptions I have, like Netflix, that you'll need to shut down. But I also have some of that sentimental stuff. I've pre-written my final posts that I want to go out on social media because it always happens that someone passes away and their last tweet was, my taco was great from Taco Bell. You know, I'd like something a bit more meaningful. I really like that because sometimes I post on Instagram and I'm like, I'm a little morbid like that. But I go, if this was my, if I died, because you see that happen sometimes if you pass away and the last post was like, you know, just not that epic of the art of your life and you're putting the closing sentiment on it, right? So I really like the last post idea. I think you and I are very similar in our thinking because I think that all the time. And uh, and listen, we I have a vested interest in thinking more about death than the average person. And the average person doesn't think about this stuff. But again, you know, ask yourself a couple questions. If I were to pass away, what would I want to happen to my social platforms? Would I want them to remain active? Would I want them deleted? And would I want a final message? And then in terms of my online footprint, my domain names that I own, any cryptocurrency, my email, all of my my Amazon account, can someone access that? Would someone know what to do with those things? And do any of those things have monetary value? Because for me, I have crypto, I have domains that are worth money. And so it's not just about who can get access to the accounts. Those actually are assets that are worth money. And for some people, I mean, if you own sex.com, that's a pretty big asset, right? So uh, you want to make Do you sure own that you sex.com? I wish I did because then I would not be working on a startup. I would be retired. But, uh, but yeah. Okay. I like that. Thank you very much. Um, So we did talk a little bit about millennials, and I know we only have 10 more minutes here. The aging population, the baby boomers, they're getting to that age where, you know, they're getting into their 60s and 70s, and there's a wave of millennials that are going to be inheriting money or assets over the next 10 to 20 years. And bankers and financial planners know this. They've been talking about this since I was 22 years old, like 8, 10 years ago, that there's going to be a wave of asset distribution from the older generation to the newer generation. And still, this isn't a major topic amongst my friends or my peers. So for the millennials out there that maybe don't have a lot of assets for them, I don't need a will. But how should they maybe have that conversation with their parents um, in a light or a palatable way? It's a great question. I mean, listen, I... I am a 35-year-old who is married to someone who has divorced parents and I have divorced parents. So we have eight parents who will pass away, um, you know, if we're lucky enough to outlive them. And especially because we're estate planning experts, we're going to be executors 
many times. My biggest motivation for my parents to have a will is to save me time when the time comes. So you shouldn't be talking to your parents about getting a will for the good of your health. You should be doing it because you're going to be the one dealing with all of this stuff and not just the will. I sat down with my mom. I said to myself, you know, if I, if my parents passed away and I didn't know the answers to these questions, I'd really be a hypocrite because I sit here all day and talk about how you should be having the conversations. So about a month ago, I talked to my mom and I said, listen, I just want to know, you know, what kind of ceremony would you want? And it was such a great question. My stepdad sat down, we talked about it. Donate to science. I want this. I I don't want a funeral, a traditional funeral. It was really great. And now I had so much peace of mind after, and I took some notes that I would be not only informed, but I'd be doing right by her because I think that's the biggest thing is I've heard stories of families who, you know, cremated their family member and found a letter from them a month later saying they wanted their body donated to science. And that must feel horrible. I didn't follow their wishes because I didn't know they existed. So my advice to every millennial out there is it's not going to be a fun conversation when you have it. Do what I did. Pour a glass of wine. Wait till you're relaxing. Maybe before the bachelorette starts or right when it's over, you know, say, mom, I care about you. I really know that I'm going to be the one taking care of this and I want to do right by you. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and I'm going to take notes and then we're never going to have to talk about it again if you don't want to, but I'm going to feel like I can do right by you when the time comes. Amazing. When I had that conversation with my family, a couple sh- tears were shed, a couple arguments amongst, amongst the brother as who's going to be the executor, who even wants to take that on, right? So they don't always go smoothly. I'm but... an only I'm an only child. I have a half sister, but my mom is not her kid. So uh, for me, it was kind of obvious who the role would be, all of that type of stuff. But to your point, there's also a lot of blended families who have other concerns as well. You know, my mom is concerned. My stepdad has kids, my step siblings. How will I ensure that you're taken care of if I'm gone and I leave everything to him? So there's also complexities to your point around family dynamics in 2020, yeah. where if you don't have these conversations, you're setting yourself up for a succession level drama in your family when someone passes away. Yeah, yeah. And uh, maybe someone to mediate that is a good idea, but uh, definitely doing it earlier is better than later. How has, because we know that right now, um, COVID-19 has changed our life. There was, there is before COVID and after COVID, BC and AC kind of thing, you know? Um, and how has a famous line that we've that we've heard lots is that covid created a di- digital accelerator for the world and things that used to be not normal back then are super normal now how is that how has covid in the whole situation changed how people do wills or even perceive death yeah i think it's uh, we were fortunate enough to be in a business where we did see a positive impact from covid because it caused people to you know, move it to the top of their to-do list when it had probably been at the bottom for a long time. Uh, But more importantly, it did two things. Number one, it highlighted that the unexpected can happen anytime. And so if you put off for tomorrow what you should do today, you're going to get caught and you should actually prioritize this stuff. And number two, it absolutely moved society forward a decade or even two decades in terms of our acceptance and usage of digital tools, especially for older generations. We saw immediately in March 
uh, our average user age jumped up by a few years. We had lots of seniors who didn't want to go out of their home. They didn't want to meet with a lawyer. And so they were being forced into turning to an online platform like ours. And also from a legislative perspective, we've seen a huge jump forward. The government is now con- uh, considering things like online signatures on wills mm-hmm. and online storing of wills, which it still isn't allowed. You still have to sign your will on paper, which is like, what? It's 2020. We can do everything online, but we can't sign our wills. So if anything positive has come out of COVID, it has been this shift in thinking, both amongst consumers and amongst legislators, about how we can actually become a more digital first society. One question for you. Different people have different stories, and I love, I'm a big reader. Uh, I love asking people, like, what are one or two books that's really made a big impact for you in the last year or two years that you've read? I don't know if you like reading books too much. I'm but... such a reader. Okay. I love reading. And uh, one that I've read recently that really had a big impact on me is a book called Crucial Conversations. Okay. I'm a, a very empathetic leader and I really struggle with having hard conversations. But one of the best things that you can do as a leader or with people in your life is have difficult, honest, but productive conversations. Hey, actually, maybe even about state planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this book really teaches you how to find mutual purpose and to uh, provide difficult feedback in a constructive way. And it's really helpful for both your personal life, if you're arguing with your partner, or if if you're in a professional setting and you're managing people and you need to provide tough, tough words. Mark, didn't you just recommend that one to me? Sorry, I missed the name of it. Crucial Conversations. I think I did. that was one of the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, okay. Mark's sending me uh, underlining messages in his I book guess, recommendations. I guess, yeah, he does. <laughs> for, Kev hated that I read it because for a month I'd be like, now we need to find mutual purpose. He's like, stop with the fucking Crucial Conversations. <laughs> okay, I love that. Thanks. And uh, so second last question, uh, where can people find you online? Get in touch with you. Yep. So people can find me anywhere at at Aaron Burry, and they can find us at Willful at w i l l f u l dot c o, uh, and you can ask me anytime about anything to do with estate planning, The Bachelorette, or my favorite food, pizza. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Um, best pizza place in Toronto. Uh, I l- I really enjoy Maker Pizza. Wow, Mark, we're we're between makers. And okay. Blondies. I really like Blondies. I really like the Fourth Man in the Fire, and I really like uh, North of Brooklyn. So oh, all of those. We are... were gonna get North of Brooklyn because we haven't tried that yet, and someone else recommended. Bro- get the garlic knots. Mm. Okay. You gotta get the garlic yeah, knots. They're right. key. So that that's yeah exactly. Okay, uh, last question. So I asked this question to everybody who's on the podcast. It's it started because we take a lot of things for granted and I noticed this like this phone it just works I turn it on oh I don't, I don't understand know. like electricity how does Telephones. it work electricity I have no idea it's funny you bring up electricity because we have a friend and he's an electrician and you go and you just flick on a light yeah. switch and everything works right? do you want to talk about the internet like yeah. how does the internet does work? work so um, we started asking people on the podcast that um, especially people of expertise such as yourself and a lot of people have different points of view on how the world works, and they know things that other people don't. So um, I like to ask this to everybody. What's one thing that you know that you wish other people knew or more people knew? This is such a tough question. I was thinking about this before we hit record. And if I, knowing there's a lot of kind of entrepreneurs or, or business folks listening, I think the one thing that I wish people knew is that 
you can be a kind and empathetic leader and still be effective in business. I think there's this misconception that you have to be Steve Jobs screaming at people to get the best work. But in my experience, uh, actually caring about people, uh, being empathetic and imbuing kind of warmth into your company can actually be a really great way to set a great culture and tone and also uh, create retention. And you can still absolutely get great work out of folks. Wow. Very interesting. Mark, how do you feel about that? Because Mark's such a hard ass at the, at the company. He's, he's, he's the, he's the bad, he's the bad cop. I'm always the good cop. (laughs) I understand the sarcasm. Thank you for sharing that. It's so important. I agree. Uh, Because people read the Steve Jobs book and they're like, oh, do I have to be like that in order to have a successful company? Well, and you also feel like you do feel like you have to be. A business coach said to me recently, and it was kind of an aha moment, stop thinking that you have to go in and, and yell at people to have an effective company. Lean into your personality. It would be so antithetical to people's vision of you if you all of a sudden came in and made people cry and it wouldn't motivate them. It would just make them think that you were going through a weird phase. Lean into your natural skills and tendencies and then augment your misgivings with people around you. I love that. And perfect timing to wrap it up. 11.58, Aaron has to get to a lunch and learn right now. But thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this was an amazing conversation and more people need to know about this. Good luck with your with your company and everything. Thanks, likewise, Anthony. And thanks for caring about it and spreading the word about it too. You obviously have a really high level of, of passion and knowledge about estate planning as well. So it's always great to chat with someone who nerds out on it like you, I do. You are too kind. Hopefully we'll do this again sometime. Until next time, this is What They Did Not Teach You in School. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at The Wise Investor. Until next time. This is What They Did Not Teach You in School. We hope to see you soon.